Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, the future of non-traditional innovation. To come to D.C., to come to, to Washington, and, and then all of a sudden be looking at science policy from this completely different vantage point. During the Obama administration, there was a lot of focus on bringing technology innovation into the government from non-traditional sources. There was certainly a lot of press around this issue, acquisition reform, publicized activities such as the GSA's 18F program and the Pentagon's DIUX initiative got lots of coverage. Well, even though the administration may have changed, the trend remains the same. That's the opinion of our guest, Sharon Hayes, senior fellow at LMI. We're going to talk about the current state of innovation in the federal government and why the appetite for new innovation hasn't gone away with the changes in leadership and how our local tech industry is acting as a conduit to new innovations from unexpected sources. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, you've been around technology innovation in different ways. And tell me, what is it about technology innovation that interests you personally? I think it started long ago when I was in graduate school. So I'm a scientist by training. And I became really interested in how the innovation ecosystem within the United States functions and, and the role that graduate students and education in general play in that. That's what led me to a career in science and technology policy. So I worked on Capitol Hill and then at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where the, the issue is looking at the innovation, uh, the innovation of the government at large and all of the, the different parts that make it up from the private sector to federal investment and in research and so on. Understanding how all of that works and how we can channel that to solve our nation's most difficult problems, that I find, I find truly fascinating. As do I. And I think that uh, it, frankly, is one of this region's distinguishing characteristics when people wonder how can you be a technology community without having a venture capital industry. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really true. I mean, there's so many different uh, ways to invest in innovation. The private sector plays a huge role, both uh, within companies, uh, from uh, venture capital and, and other kinds of investments uh, from outside an individual company. And then, of course, the federal government plays a huge role in investing in research and development, um, not just in, in universities, not just in federal labs, um, but indirectly in the private sector as well. And I think that's really the part of the puzzle that's least understood here in our region. And I look at Uncle Sam very much as our angel investor or venture investor technology. And a lot of that technology spend about R&D actually occurs in companies like LMI, right? That's correct. Right. So so LMI is, is a government contractor. We serve the federal government. Our mission is to sol- help the government solve their most difficult challenges. Um, has been for almost 60 years. We were uh, founded in, in 1961. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that, that we are spending more and more time organizing ourselves around is how we can make investments, um, leveraging the, the resources that we get as a government contractor. That's where that's where we um, th- that's how we generate revenue is through government contracts. Um, but all of everything that we do, whether it's uh, directly serving our customer or whether it's building our innovation program, is aimed at solving those most difficult challenges that the federal government faces. And I think that um, one of the reasons why people outside our region don't understand uh, how innovative this community is is because they conflate the customer with the activity. Did you know much about the government contracting community when you were a policymaker on the Hill or before that when you you know, you know were a healthcare expert? What did it look like from the outside and, and how different is it now that you're on the inside looking out? Yeah, it's been it's been fascinating because um, I, I went from being a bench scientist and 
as we used to say, uh, moving liquids from one test tube to another, um, to the uh, policy mechanisms of at the highest level of the government at, at OSTP, where you're really looking at that high-level funding and then moving into the private sector, and not just the private sector, um, but into the acquisition side of the private sector, where, uh, where government contracts are, are let and performed. And that was a huge transformation for me to, to go from that sort of 40,000-foot altitude level of, of innovation and, and uh, science policy to where the actual work gets done. So much of what gets done in the federal government, whether it's innovation or just performing the duties of government, is done by government contractors. So it was a huge learning experience for me to go from that high level down to the the sort of ground level of where everything happens. Now, certainly, um, when I think back to five years ago, there was a lot of PR and a real push for the federal government to engage with, you know, garage inventors, not just performers. My impression is that that interest hasn't gone away, but maybe there's not as much publicity around it. What, what's your stand from your standpoint? When you look at LMI's activities or other government contracts in town, is there still the same pressure to find non-traditional innovation? I think so. Um, that's something that that we're increasingly interested in. So keep in mind that LMI is uh, a mid-sized government contractor. We're not a small company, um, but and so when we compete, we're competing against the big the big guys. Um, but we're not a a giant, uh, you know, sort of what we call metal bending kind of company where we're actually creating things, whether they're airplanes or um, processors or things like that. We don't produce hardware. We don't produce um, products. So our place in, um, in the innovation ecosystem is, is very different than that of some of those, those other giants that, um, that actually make products. Um, so we're, we're looking at those smaller investments as absolutely a key way to um, to, to really sort of prime the pump of, of the, the innovation that we're doing as a company and that, like I said before, is really aimed at serving our government customer. So how does it play out? Uh, does it play out that uh, these days that um, the government will look for the they, – do they look for a specific solution or do they say, hey, go and, go and be innovative? I mean, how does it actually play out in, in the real world? Yeah, so so the, the there's so many different ways that the government invests in in R and D, um, and of course there's the whole university government lab direct investment um, in in more basic research. But when you're talking about um, government contractors and and um, the the sort of more development side of the R and D spectrum, um, then I think there is a tendency in in across our industry to wait for the government to tell us what they need. And that's important. Obviously, we have to, um, any, anyone playing in this, in this industry um, needs to be highly responsive to what the government needs, and very often they know exactly what they need, and it's just a matter of implementing that. But we need to always leave room for innovation that's at the frontiers, that's, that's sort of the iPhone model of you know, the, the, the customer base didn't tell Apple that the iPhone was what they wanted, they invented it, and then lo and behold, everybody wanted it. Um, so we don't pretend um, we don't pretend to be working at that sort of scale, but um, but that that innovation at the edges, that innovation, that helping the government understand not what they need just today, but what they're going to need and want tomorrow. That's a really important niche that I think is underserved um, today. A lot of our listeners are people building their careers, building startups. 
if I wanted to be an innovator in, in the government space, um, am I better off starting a company and attracting attention, or am I better off joining a company like yours and working within to change things? How would you describe the two paths? I think they're both important. Um, and actually, at LMI, we are we're working on both fronts ourselves. So we have uh, we have an internal R and D program um, where we invest um, in. Uh, those ideas that we think that the government hasn't necessarily identified yet as specific needs, but we're trying to to get ahead of that curve. Um, but we also have a program, our ventures program, where we're investing in early stage companies. And, and the idea is that we're not going to think of everything. We don't want to try to be everything to everyone. Um, but there are inventors and there are entrepreneurs out there who are thinking about all of all of these different things that taken together can really start um, really start solving some of these big problems. So, so we're going down both tracks. I think they're both really, really important. What technology areas are you particularly interested in? So we, um, we have a lot of interest right now in advanced analytics and in, in really any, um, any way that we can apply the consulting that, that we are uh, so well known for and so good at to the, the uh, digital transformation of the government, the increased use of advanced analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, all of those things that, um, that, that have the potential to really transform everything about the way the government operates. Well, you've been around different types of technologies in your career. You mentioned you were, you were a, a beaker slave <laughs> earlier in your career. So you've been around You've been around life sciences. You're now around software and computing and high technology of related nature. How would you differentiate the entrepreneurs you've met or work with in each area? Are they the same or are they different? I think entrepreneurs have a lot of, of similar qualities regardless of the, the scientific discipline or area that they, they come from in terms of um, being visionary, being willing to live with a, a risk um, a risk, having a, a higher risk threshold than than, than maybe non-entrepreneurs. Um, certainly, when I was in graduate school, um, was really the, the the real beginning of the the sort of molecular and genetic approach to um, to to everything across biotech. And so, I mean, obviously, uh, molecular techniques had been around for a while, but the real automation of it. Um, and so doing gene on a chip kind of screening and all of that really took off while I was in graduate school. So it was, it was fascinating to watch other students around me, some of whom, like me, left academia and went into um, other fields, in my case, government. Um, but there were a few that you could see were really gearing up to become entrepreneurs and start their own companies with what they'd done in the laboratory. And um, I, I, I admired them, that, that ability to, to take on that risk level that, that many of us don't want to live with um, was, was really exciting and admirable. But I really saw that, that happening. At the same time, um, where I was going to graduate school out in the Silicon Valley um, is really the beginning of the, the IT boom as well. Um, and so I wasn't nearly as close to that at the time. Um, but it was it was very clear that, that that exact same thing was happening across all of these different sectors in, 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 at the same time, where people were students, even undergrads, even were starting their own companies right out of their dorm room or apartment, or whatever. So it was a very exciting time to, to be there. And then to come to D.C., to come to, to Washington and, and then all of a sudden be looking at science policy from this completely different vantage point. I think that entire background of being in academia, watching 
these entrepreneurial industries really rise up out of almost nothing. And then looking at the overall innovation enterprise from that federal perspective um, was it was it, it was fun, but I think it was also a sort of unique viewpoint to, to bring to D.C. I think it's an amazing story, and I very much appreciate sharing with us today. Sharon Hayes and LMI, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And now, What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. When Chris Rowley, the GSA's chief data officer, looked out at his organization, he knew they had a problem. Despite the fact that the General Service Administration is one of the most important agencies in the federal government, with more than 12,000 employees, a budget of $26 billion, and another contracting budget of $66 billion, they didn't have the ability to do analysis over their own data. This, for him, was shocking. So he committed himself and his team to fixing this issue. He knew that the system would have to have three raw capabilities. First, it would need to be cloud-based. Cloud enables scalability and drives down cost. Second, it would need to be based on open source technology. With the rise of Red Hat and other such capabilities, he knew that by building open source, he'd be able to keep the costs down and bring together very high-tech capacities. Third, he needed interoperability. Interoperability is this idea that he could hot-swap technologies as new capabilities came out and old ones became redundant. Really, he was thinking about AI and ML. So he reached out to the market and he engaged with a series of companies, but one in particular, Acuity Systems, and they went out and they built this system. They built what became Data to Decisions. And when you think about Data to Decisions, this is really important because it was a fundamental and paradigm shift to how they did their business at GSA. Historically, they couldn't answer simple questions like, how many employees are retiring? Or how many employees do I need to hire to replace the employees that are retiring? But with data to decisions, they could do that. But that's not why I'm telling you this story today. I really want to focus on this story for a separate reason. As many of you know, most IT projects fail in the government, but this one was a success. And what they've done with data to decision is something that's really unique in the market. They've shared this capability not just with the GSA, but with any agency that wants it. And so rather than your agency having to create a new data platform out of whole cloth, they can simply go to D2D and go ahead and borrow that capability to use it for their own reasons. So as you think about your agency and wanting to become more data-driven in your decision-making, think of Chris Rowley, think of GSA, and go to D2D. That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, the Sunbathers and my own band, Two Car Living Room. And of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sarefoil Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>